present uh, Pauline Van Dusha from the University of Victoria in Canada. I've known Pauline since 1989, when I first made a very nice trip out to Victoria to tell her about the work that I did in my PhD thesis. And uh, we've been chums and collaborators since then. Uh, she's made many contributions in lots of different areas of mathematics, uh, especially to mathematical biology, combinatorial matrix theory, uh, and notions of uh, stability theory for matrices as well. She'll talk to us about models for the spread of Colorado. Thank you, Steve, and thank you for letting me talk here. And I apologize for the, we're on the third laptop now, <laughs> but it's going to work. So I want to um, tell you about some of the work I've been doing about the spread of cholera. And um, I think it's an, a very mixed audience, which is great. So, but please interrupt me, stop me, and ask me questions as we go along. And if you want me to elaborate on anything, then I'll try and do that. So how many of you here have um, I was going to say how many of you had cholera, but I hope no hands go up for that. How many of you know much about cholera? Oh, that's okay then. I can tell you some things, first of all, about cholera. And then I want to tell you some things we've done in modeling it, some dynamical systems. And of course, because Steve is here, I have to do something with matrices. So we'll try and do some of these things. So what is cholera? Well. Uh, after lunch, this may not seem the best time to talk about it, but it's an infection of the small intestine by, caused by a bacterium. And usually, if somebody catches cholera, then they'll recover with just mild diarrhea. So it's not too bad. But unfortunately, in some cases, individuals get very severe diarrhea, and it, it leads to death very quickly. If an individual is not uh, given some special dehydration or because what happens is there's an electrolyte imbalance and that's a very quick death. So how is it transmitted? So that what this means is how does an individual catch cholera? And there are two ways. This is one thing that makes it very interesting. And one way is humans can catch it through the environment, through water in particular, but it could be through uh, vegetables washed in water, so it doesn't have to be directly through water contamination. But another way is directly from another individual with cholera. So particularly if it, people are living in very close communities or are sharing water wells, this, it's a very good way to transmit cholera. So one thing that makes it interesting from the dynamical systems point of view are these two distinct transmission routes. So initially there was a, some cholera outbreaks in the world and the one that's very well documented is one in England in the mid-1800s and now we know how it's transmitted but they didn't know then and so this was a very keen observation by John Snow who found that it was this contaminated <coughs> water pump. And this people who went to this water pump to get water, these were the people that were contacting the contaminated water and were contracting cholera. So to us it seems sort of obvious, but it certainly wasn't. And now this is rather nice if you go to somewhere in Soho, not exactly sure where, but you see this the pump, which is a memorial to John Snow. And behind it, if you look carefully behind it, you see a pub. And this is John Snow's pub. So if you go there, I'm not sure if you can get Guinness, but if you buy something with water in it, then better make sure it's very clean water. So where does it occur? So you see these maps, and they're produced every day by uh, healthmap.org and these red and orange will tell you where it's bad and this map was just a few days ago and usually you see it around Pakistan that area but interestingly enough it's not there now where it's very bad are parts of Africa 
And here is where I really want to focus. So Haiti and unfortunately now the Dominican Republic. So when we got interested in this modeling of cholera and we as in particular, uh, myself and Ji Sheng who was a postdoc with me in Victoria, was after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. And then a lot of troubles happened in Haiti in particular, they had big cholera outbreaks. And unfortunately it's still there. And it, uh, I'll show you more details about it, but just in the last few days it's become worse after Hurricane Sandy brought a lot of rain to Haiti, Haiti and then the cholera outbreak occurred again. And it's also now bad in the Dominican Republic there. So it's fairly widespread disease and here's an estimate of the number of cases per year and the horrible number of deaths and very widespread. So as I say, usually you see it around the Bay of Bengal, but uh, not there at the moment, which is good. This is a, a nasty outbreak in, in Africa, and there there were a lot of cases and a huge number of deaths due to cholera, so not a good thing. Here's the Haiti outbreak, and I just gave you the, the figures there for a year. So it started in October 2010 after the earthquake, and then you can see the number over 6,000 deaths in the one year. So some of the other estimates that come in are very difficult to interpret. In particular now it's quite bad in Cuba, but getting reports or accurate reports out of Cuba is very difficult. So I'm going to focus on Haiti to at least to motivate the idea. So here's Haiti, part of Hispaniola, and in particular I want to focus on this Antibonite River, which I'll show you in a, a blow up of this Antibonite River. And what happened? These are, if you look here, they're the dates at which it started. So, what happened? They think, oh, sorry, the dates are not on this, it's just where, where the health facilities reporting it on two days. So this is a very quickly when it started and it started they think in this area here and then it spread along the river. So we got the, the motivation for looking at the spread from this map and this is a very scary thing that people were investigating how did it start in Haiti and what they think happened, and this is not, not totally obvious, but from some of the work that's been done, they think it started from a United Nations uh, mission group who came and camped here, and then it spread down the river. So maybe they thought they were doing good, but on the other hand, they brought this nasty disease with them. So. Before we can look at how it spreads though, we have to look at some homogeneous models because unless we get the simple models right, then we're not going to be able to put some spread into the model. So this was our motivation, but now I'm going to focus more on the dynamics and how do we model the spread of color. I'll start with this was the one of the first models of the sort of let's say new generation first model of cholera. So how many <coughs> of you have worked on this kind of compartmental disease model? Have a lot of people here worked on that? Probably not. Okay, so let me explain a little bit. So I like these flow diagrams. So what's happening here? Well, basically here we've got a population and we've divided this population into three distinct groups. So individuals are either susceptible, so they don't have the disease, but they could catch it. Or they're infectious, and here that means they have the disease, so cholera. Or they're removed 
from it, so they've recovered from cholera. So individuals are in one of these three categories, and they're recruited into the susceptible class, and then they may become infectious, or, and then they may become removed. But notice that they in, when they have cholera, they may die, which is given by the alpha term there, and the natural death is the D term in each compartment there. So that's usually a simple epidemic model, but cholera, because you can catch it from the water or from, in general, a pathogen, we have this extra compartment here. So this is the, a pathogen compartment, the B here, and how is an individual going to catch it? Well, here we've only got indirect transmission. So Codico was focusing on the indirect transmission. So this is what's called an incidence function. So how does an individual who's susceptible become infectious? Well, some interaction between the susceptible, so the S, and the pathogen B. And the way it's done here is a function B over K plus B, which we call saturating incidence. So what that means is if B is small, then um, it's going to be B over K, so as what's termed mass action. But if B is large, then it, it uh, asymptotes. So it, you, you need a certain amount of pathogen to become infectious, but a huge amount doesn't help. That's the idea. So that's the incidence function. And then the other important thing is how does the pathogen get in there, into the soil or into the water, it's because infectious individuals shed, and that's the CI term there. And then the pathogens are removed or die with a rate constant delta. So does that sort of explain the, the flow there? Any questions about that? So. If some people, I'm just going to put that bit up there before I answer that. Yes, do you have a question you, about it? Once you, uh, do you become a mute cholera once you... Ah, oh, now that's a very good question. <laughs> so in this model, an individual who has recovered from cholera will not catch it again. But now it's thought that that's probably not 100% true. You might not get it immediately afterwards. Uh, yes, so you may see some of the, the models later. I'll put that extra term in. That's a good question. So that brings up a whole new point about this, that you can build these models of dynamical systems, but in order to do so, you have to really understand the biology and what's behind it. And so the models uh, are never right. <laughs> no model is right. But you, you put in what you think are the most important things. And notice here, this one has only indirect transmission. So it was, it was thought that that was the most important thing, but as I'll show you, that might not be the case. So, so some people like differential equations, some people like flow diagrams, and they're really saying the same thing in a sense, but we translate the flow diagram. So I'll just focus on the I1. So what this is saying is the rate of change of the infectious individuals is equal to the coming in from S, so the incidence term, going out of I. And what goes out of I? Well, natural death, recovery, and death due to cholera. Notice that we do not put in there the shedding. So why is that? Well, the shedding does not really affect the infectious individuals. They just shed this, but it doesn't help them recover, it doesn't kill them, it doesn't do anything there. So that's the set of differential equations that Codico developed about, what, 11 years ago now, and analyzed those. And I won't go through all the analysis, but I will just show you a little bit about Codico's analysis here. So. What did Codico do? He, in this paper, there was not a lot of analysis done, but um, what's often done with disease models, you look for what's called a disease-free equilibrium, and this is the ideal situation. Everyone is susceptible, no one is infectious, and in this case, 
no one would be recovered and there would be no pathogen around. So we find it as the input divided by the death. And then we want to know if we start with this situation, this nice situation, and we put in one or more than one infectious individual, so an individual that has cholera, what will happen? Do we stay close to this disease-free equilibrium? In other words, does cholera die out? Or do we get an epidemic of cholera? That's the question. So to translate that into dynamical systems theory, is that equilibrium stable? Do we go back to the disease-free or do we go away and get a lot of cholera? So in order to do that, I've just written down the two equations of the, on the previous slide that are the infected equations. So the infectious individuals and the pathogen. And then there's a method called the next generation matrix method that we look at the Jacobian of this matrix at the disease-free equilibrium. And we write it in a funny way, seemingly funny way, we write it as F minus V, so we split up this matrix. So we take this system of equations, we write down the Jacobian matrix, so we take the partial derivatives, we evaluate it at the disease-free equilibrium. So we have a two by two matrix, and we write that as F minus V. And there's my F and the V. So, I guess the, the partial derivative is clear, I hope, and if we look at the B equation, the B equation will just give you those two terms in V. So what is F? F is the new infections. The new infections are just from the first equation there. And the V is the transfer term, so the death terms the terms coming from the infection to the pathogen terms. And what this next generation matrix method does, it says, if you want all your eigenvalues on the left half plane, so that's stable, that means F minus V has all eigenvalues in the left half plane, we can find that by looking at the spectral radius of the matrix F V inverse. So, in other words, it, the eigenvalues would be all in the left half plane, and the first one will cross over exactly where the spectral radius of F inverse is equal to 1 there. So, we have this analogy between the two, and it's built in using some nice matrix theory, which I think Steve would really like. So, the matrix V is... Uh, M matrix, so V inverse is non-negative, F is non-negative, and we find this spectral radius. It's easy in this case because it's a rank one matrix, so we just read off the some of the diagonal terms. And then we can show by some work I did with James Watmau that the disease-free equilibrium is locally asymptotically stable if R0 is less than 1, so cholera would die out cholera would increase if R0 is greater than 1. So it's a linear analysis. And this has a nice interpretation as um, the number of susceptibles at the disease-free, A over D, times the time in the infectious class, 1 over D plus gamma plus alpha, and then the other terms, the lambdas, the transmission, and then the six, uh, theta over delta coming from the pathogen term. So we can interpret this biologically. So this is a way that is used in a lot of models to get what's called a threshold. So R0 equals 1 is the threshold between disease being there and not being there. And here's a bit of a question that people are interested in now. You notice the way I wrote the F and the V? I put there that the shedding was not a new infection. So infectious individuals shed th through um, feces very often into the water, and that was not a new infection. But 
you could argue shedding is a new infection because we're putting this into the pathogen and that's new there and we do that then that moves that term into the F matrix we still have non-negative matrix times V and M matrix we still can calculate the spectral radius of FV inverse we get something different so the something different doesn't matter at the threshold one it's the same because square root of one is equal to one is the same as the number but it matters a lot if we're going to do some sensitivity analysis or something so I don't know which is right and people are discussing this you'll see one in one paper and one in another paper so it's an interesting idea that in order to do the models you'd need the biology to get which is right there that's a bit of an aside so let's go through a few more models then so we had Codico's model and then in what is this 1998 it was actually a bit before Codico it was noticed that freshly shed Vibrio, so that's uh, fresh contamination, the infectivity was much, much bigger. So uh, freshly shed Vibrios were really important, and that wasn't in the model. So this is a, another paper that's much cited on cholera, Hartley et al. They put that into the model. So what's different about this than the previous picture? Well, the previous picture was sort of cut off here. And the previous picture just had one lot of pathogens. This picture has these hyperinfectious ones, these really, really infectious ones, and then the lower ones as well. And so pathogens go from being hyperinfectious to low infectious and then removed. The only other difference is the incidence. Notice the incidence term now is two. It has high and low, and it's both put in in the same way there. Otherwise, it's, it's the same. So that was analyzed. I'm not going to go through all the analysis of what these, each model developed. So then, um, later, and probably two or three years ago, it was noticed that human-to-human -human transmission was important. And there are various figures, and you get these figures which 41 to 95 percent, I mean, that's a huge <laughs> range, but it, it seems it's important. So we'd better put that into the model. And the next paper I'm going to show you took much simpler infection terms. They dropped the saturation, and they ignored hyperinfectivity. So again, we have part of the model, but still we know it's not exactly right so how is this different well this has one pathogen case one state there the incidence now is the thing that's different so now the incidence the first term beta si is between human to human and then the lambda sb is the pathogen to human but a simpler one no saturation just mass action so that was analyzed fairly recently in 2010 and then the same group of people said well <laughs> what's been observed is that if individuals are infectious it matters how long they've had the disease so I show you the flow diagram they investigated this so how is this different? This is different in that there are several infectious classes. So it might be that an individual that just has got cholera is not too infectious to start with. Then they really become very infectious, and then it tapers off. You can see that kind of thing with flu. If an individual, actually just before the symptoms of flu, people are very infectious. And then... Uh, it tapers off a little bit. So if you sit by somebody with flu, you have to ask them, how long have you had this? And if they say, oh, only a day, then move <laughs> away. But, so these put in different infectious stages.
So what do these models have in common? Well, mostly they, the development of the models, they would um, find the disease-free state, find the threshold, R0, and then find that there was a state where cholera was present and show that the threshold really was a true threshold. So that's mostly what they did. And then we looked at all these models and we thought, well, there's so much involved here. How do we know what's important? Maybe we should look at a model that takes everything into account. Can we do anything with that? And when I say everything, they're obviously missing things as well, but everything that all the other models had. So this is where we started and we thought we'd better put in multiple infectious stages. We'd better put in the pathogen as multiple infectious stages, hyperinfectivity, for example. We'd better put in human to human, and we'd better put in human to environment to human. And we'd better put in different incidence functions. So why don't we start with something fairly general? So F will be human to human, and G will be environment to human there. And then we thought we'd better put in nonlinear shedding, because how do we know that it's just a linear function? So this was our attempt to take all those other models and try to put them into one and see how important each of these assumptions is. And so what we did, we built this model and we're going to have N infectious human stages, M infectious states of the pathogen, these general functions, F and G and H, and we want to describe and put together all the previous ones. But our idea was, can we do it with dynamical systems theory? Will we get some different fun uh, behavior? So that was our aim. So here's the picture. So I it includes everything we've seen, I believe. We've got this transmission term, both from individuals that are infectious and pathogen. We've got lots of infectious stages. We've got lots of pathogen stages. And in this model, we assume that if someone had caught cholera and recovered, they would not catch it again. So we got a big, big model, and I just quickly show it to you. <laughs> it's a lot of equations. And we just focus for a moment on the first infectious state. So that's the second equation there. They come from humans who were susceptible and then contacted someone in the jth infectious stage, or susceptibles that contacted the pathogen in the J infectious stage, and natural death, recovery, and cholera death there. And then we put on some non-negative initial conditions. So it's, it's a nasty big system, but uh, see what we can do with it. So anyone have any questions about the model? There, that's what we it's all continuous and people are discreet. That's right, good question. <laughs> people are very discreet. <laughs> yes, so why do we do that? Well, we could have done it with um, difference equations, but usually uh, epidemic models are done with continuous things, and I guess our idea here is that uh, the disease is being continually evolved. But, uh, one good point here is when we do these different infectious states, that's obviously an approximation because you don't go from being in state I1 to state I2. You go continuously there. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very good question. It's uh, you could do the discrete, so but we to map between the two. There's some continuum of models. Yeah. These are the bulk models at the end. Yes, we turns to be the analysis would probably be much more difficult with the um, difference equations. And what also seems to happen is 
or the ones I've looked at, they're much less stable. So we're more likely to get periodic solutions and things like that from the dynamical systems point of view. It's a very good question. Okay. What should I, we do? Can I partly argue against Doug's point to some extent? Which is that you could use uh, work with Tom Kurtz from the early 1970s to establish that this is the, you know, the large-scale limit of the sequence of different mm -hmm. equations, right? And then, so implicit in everything that you're doing yes. is there's a large number of well-mixed people, otherwise right. none of them makes any sense yes. anyway. And That's that, right. And in that limit, there's mm -hmm. work from the chemical master equation mm -hmm. from 1972 yeah. or whatever, which would yes. So for sure, we are assuming the lots of people, we're assuming there's no stochasticity. Yeah, yeah. no spatial element. Right. Yeah. yeah, at this time, no spatial, yes. We, of course, are, are, we'd like to put the spatial in, but we wanted to make sure what happened to this system first. Yeah. Thank you, some very good questions. So now our aim is to analyze this. So we'll start by saying, we, we put some assumptions on, I don't want to go into many details here, but let's assume smoothness. And then we, in order to get a sensible model, we need to work in a positively <coughs> invariant region because we're talking about numbers of people, amounts of pathogens, etc. So we figured out the region. And then we had our disease-free equilibrium, which is exactly the same as before. Everyone is susceptible. and Everything else is zero, all the infectious stages, all the pathogen is zero, and it lies on the boundary of the feasible region map. And now, if there's an endemic, so what this means, if there's an equilibrium with disease present, then in the interior, let, we'll call it the star. And the disease could be present in some or all of the compartments there. But this is a disease present equilibrium. So as I showed you with the Kodako idea, we want like to see if there's a threshold. Is there some one parameter which tells us if the disease is there or not? That's what this is boiling down to. So we assume we can take partial derivatives of the incidence functions. And just so I can write it quickly, I'll take the rate of going out of the ith infectious class is new i. And then we find, yes, we can do this. And this is kind of surprising when you first look at it, that this huge system, you can still find it by, uh, get this, called the basic reproduction number, this r0, or R naught, I guess, in Europe, maybe. <laughs> and uh, we can still find it explicitly. And the nice thing is, F is rank 1. And V is still a non-singular M matrix there. So we still can find this. And here it is. So it's, it's more complicated, but it, we can interpret every term in it, which is nice. Codicos would just have had the Q1, R1 over delta 1, nu 1. That was Kodakos. Now, because we've got all these different states, we have the first bit, which is direct transmission. And that is the, we have to multiply it by the probability of actually reaching the ith infectious class. And then the last part is the indirect transmission. So we need to multiply it again by the average time in the pathogen class. And then we sum it to the probabilities of surviving to each infectious state. And then the rate of pathogen shedding, which are the R's there. So this is um, something we didn't really know, that we would get the sum of the two. So which is important there, depends on the parameters. But we can get this one number, which is a really very important for the model, and we get the same result here, that if we had this number less than one, and there were just one or two cholera cases, the disease would die out. But unfortunately, if this number was bigger than one, then the disease would take off, and we would get an epidemic of the disease. So the number of infectious would go up before it dies out there. So, we thought, good, 
but we're mathematicians, so we're not content with local stability, because that just means if we have a few cholera cases. But suppose a whole mass of cholera cases came into the population, what would happen then? So we need to do some global analysis, and this is what we did here. So we can actually find that if R0 is less than 1, then the disease will die out. It's globally asymptotically stable. And I think I have, yes, here I have a little indication of how we proved that. And so what we did, we used the Lyapunov function, which is one of the tricks here. Interesting trick because I don't know a way of telling you how to find it. Usually you just guess. But in this case, we did have a method here. So we use this Lyapunov function, which is the left Perron eigenvector. It's this one here of the matrix. Notice not F V inverse, but V inverse F. And then that was our W. And then we take this linear combination of the I's and the B's, the infectious compartments, putting in the entries from this uh, eigenvector here. And it turns out that this now works in a general case. So it's a nice uh, idea, I think, of an uh, epidemic model, this one, leading us to some general idea in more matrix uh, theory analysis. And if you take that Lyapunov function and find its derivative along solutions, the point is it's negative. That's what you need. It's negative if R0 is less than 1. This is R0 here, so R0 minus 1. There. So this gives us the global stability. So it's a quick overview of how to do it. And then we also get here that uniform persistence, and there's at least one endemic equilibrium if R0 is greater than 1. We can do better than that. We can show that, in fact, there is a unique endemic equilibrium, and it's globally asymptotically stable. So if R0 is greater than 1, what will happen is cholera will go to a disease equilibrium. And here again, we use the Lyapunov function. It's more difficult. <laughs> Some of you, if you've done any work in ecology, will recognize the kind of terms there with Bs and Is. It's often used in ecology. And we had to do it something with a, a phi function. Just think of a phi function as increasing and satisfying something. So it's a linear combination of that integral and these sums. But how do we find these? So this is something, again, that I think is quite interesting. This was developed by Michael Lee and Kishin Chu. And they used a really old thing in uh, matrix analysis called Kirchhoff's matrix tree theorem to, to develop something they call the tree cycle identity. And that enabled them to find these constants CI. So a nice uh, use of a uh, matrix result, which I, I don't think Kirchhoff would have thought of anything about cholera or other epidemics, used here to, sh to find a negative, that's what we need, negative strictly, but first we get less than or equal to zero, and then we take out the zero case somehow. So we're able to actually find this constants, the Cs, in here. So R zero, then, is what's called a sharp threshold, not just linear, but global result. So if R0 is less than 1, cholera will die out. R0 is greater than 1, then the disease persists. Yeah. So suppose we want to control cholera, which is our aim, and we want to talk to public health people. What do we tell them? Well, we look at our R0, which sort of encapsulates a lot of things, and we say, well, if you vaccinate people, 
And this is quite interesting because there is now a vaccine for cholera. There is, in fact, an oral vaccine. So you, an individual makes two doses about two weeks apart, but it's not very effective. So I think something like 60% I've seen in the literature. And also, it's only developed, as far as I can tell from the literature, by some firms in India. And if you think about the Haiti situation, they have to get the vaccine in there, they have to distribute it, and so it's not used very much yet. So, But if you had vaccine, and then it would decrease the P's and the Q's. So that would be really good, because you'd decrease both those. So you, you want to get R0 less than 1. So it's no good if the first part is greater than 1, it doesn't matter what we do with the second part, so we, we really have to work on both. Another thing to provide clean water, and this is what they're really, really trying to do in Haiti, but notice the clean water would only decrease the Q. So only one bit of it. So if the first bit was already greater than one, then it's not going to help that much. Have a question? No, okay, sorry. And then if we improve sanitation, we're also doing a lot of in Haiti, providing decent toilet facilities. That's a big big um, project that I think there's even a prize that um, Gates are offering if people can uh, design effective toilets for use in some of the remote parts of Haiti. But that decreases R and the delta. Sorry, increases delta, luckily, yes. So that's the second part as well. So you see here we have a sort of message for public health people, okay, very good to do these, but you better also do something with the first part there. So that's um, how far we got with that model. So um, what time am I supposed to finish, Steve, in a few um, minutes? We started with it late, so uh -huh. we finish it five to three weeks. Okay. So, uh, two other parts, maybe, yeah, maybe this would be a good thing to tell you. So, uh, individuals catch cholera, some need hospitalization. People are very interested in, for all diseases, what is the final size? So, I'll try and explain a little bit what that means as we go along, but in order to do that, I'm going to simplify the model so it makes it a bit easier to explain. So I'm going to take a population that's fixed, so no recruitment, and we'll assume no death. So this is more in a, not a Haiti situation, but more in a developed country situation. So if I do that, I can work in fractions. So we'll talk about, instead of the number of susceptibles, the fraction of susceptibles. So I'll set the number of individuals N to be one. And we'll take the mass action direct transmission, so that'll be beta I, S, I, with different um, stages, and linear pathogen shedding. And then the aim of this part will be, how much does it matter if I assume that the indirect transmission is mass action or saturating incidence? So we want to investigate that. And we want to look and see what the final size will look like. So what happens if I take these assumptions, because of particularly the recruitment and death being zero, the disease will burn out. So we won't get this uh, endemic, we won't get this disease equilibrium, we'll just get what's called an epidemic. So the disease will, in, I'll say cholera here, you'll start with a very few infectious, and there's time, and so it'll peak, and then it'll die out. It, this will be R0 greater than 1 here. And so I'm, my aim is to show what this is curve look like, and how important is the assumption I make on the indirect transmission. So here's the final size. So what is the final size? Well, it's the number of recoveds at infinity, assuming no death. So 
those are the people who've had cholera. So we're looking at how many people caught cholera and in this case recovered from it. And it's in this, because we've normalized, it's one minus the number of susceptibles at the end. So one is the number of susceptibles at the beginning, everybody, we're in fractions, minus the number of susceptibles at the end, right? They will be the ones who have caught cholera. And if a small number of infectious individuals or pathogens are initially introduced, then we get this implicit equation for R infinity. And here is R0 in this case. So it's what I had before with the assumptions put in. It's the direct and indirect transmission. And if you've seen this, those of you who have worked at all in this area, you will see it often in logarithms instead of the exponentials. It's exactly the same formula here. So, what do we want to do here? Well, I'm just going to show you couple of, of graphs of the difference between saturating incidence and the, the one I had before, if I can go back, yes, this was the case where I have mass action, easy G function, we get equality notice in that final size. If I take saturating incidence, I get an inequality, same equation but an inequality there. So. We wanted to know, does it make a difference there? And so we looked at some simulations. And here I'm assuming two infectious classes and two pathogens, so hyperinfectivity and then lower infectivity. I'm taking this number 700 and I'm taking parameters from the cholera data. Notice I get a big R0. That is big, big value. So that means the disease will create an epidemic like this. And then I'm going to show you some simulations. So maybe I'll show you the simulation picture first. Here is a proper one of these. So this is the prevalence, I, the number of infectious, but it's a fraction against the time in days. We keep R0 fixed and the same initial conditions here. And if there's no direct transmission, you see it only gets up to just over a third, but it takes a longer time to come as well. If there's direct transmission with homogeneous stages, so what this means is I1 equals I2, if you like, there's only one infectious state. And then the black one is direct transmission with two stages, I1 being, I think we made it higher, infectious and then a lower infectious stage. So you see it does matter here. If you ask uh, individuals, does it matter if a third of the population at the peak has the disease or if over 70% has the disease. So it's quite important here. And then writing down, what does this mean? So direct transmission provides a fast route for cholera spread and produces a higher peak, so it's important. And then heterogeneous infectious host decelerates the disease spread. So we try to find from a very simple model some qualitative features. And so these would be important if you are planning how to control cholera, what hospital beds you'd need, etc. So that's um, a little bit about the final size. And I'm going to uh, skip through this distributed delay. We took some other models. Instead of putting the pathogen in explicitly, we put it in indirectly with a distributed delay and we got oscillations. So just show you this picture. That's fun for dynamical systems. The prevalence I against T and now we're getting periodic solutions. So cholera is coming with a high level and then decreasing, but it comes back again and again. And then we did some work on that. We had some open questions, but I, I'll just finish with a couple of slides about what we really wanted to do. <laughs> so I really wanted to put spatial 
heterogeneity in. And then we also ought to put age in. Now age here is age of disease. So a little bit like our I1, I2, I3, but we wanted to put that in more explicitly. So we're working on that. And we're also working on spatial heterogeneity. And it was motivated again. This is the picture I showed you before. So when we looked at that picture, we said it goes along the river very quickly. So we maybe ought to use a partial differential equation model to take the flow along the river as very important. But then we looked at another picture of some data. And this is a picture with dates on. And this picture shows the regions by the date at which the outbreak I think was first observed here. It's hard, in a sense, to read some of this. So one is where it started, the Artibonite, went along the Artibonite River to two quite quickly. And then notice that in November, it becomes in three different patches. We don't know how. So that picture made us think we ought to model it with discrete space. So this is called what's called a metapopulation model. So we ought to think of it jumping places, such as if you remember the SARS outbreak, it jumped from continent to continent by people flying usually. <laughs> so what should we do? Well, we're trying at the moment to do both. So we're first of all trying to do um, what's called a multi-group model. And this was started by some other people, Tuti et al, and they did, they used the 10 departments, which are like, um, I don't know the Irish word for this, but it's like a, a, a land is the German word, or what do I need to do? County, County thank you, yeah, counties of, of, of Haiti. And we are using there some, what we think are new graph theoretic ideas. So I like this idea of the, the uh, epidemic models or biological models generating ideas in different areas of mathematics. And then we're also looking at a partial differential equation model. So we're thinking of spread of humans or water, and we're looking there at traveling waves, spread rates. And then we're looking at a discrete patch model as well. And we're trying to think of how do we work with the network topology. And then these um, two people we're working with, University of Michigan and Marissa and Joe at Ohio State, have actually been to Haiti, and they have Haiti, Haitian data. So that's what we're um, working on now. So if people have suggestions on how best we could do these things, that um, would be very, very useful. So I'll stop here, and then if you have questions, please ask me, because some things I went over quite quickly, I know. <laughs> Thank you. So we have a couple of uh, moments for questions or comments. Well, I was going to ask about the relationship between this and people studying SIR models, say, on a graph, you know? Mm. There's already an extensive literature on that, including um, approximate master equations for yes. in the local populations of NMR and you know, people found that the field approaches don't work but that there's ways of patching that up. So that, that has the structure of spatial heterogeneity in it. I was just wondering. That's a very good question. Yes, I don't think I can exactly tell you the relation between it and graphs, but I have a graduate student working on some of those the, the graph ideas. So the idea there is you use um, probabilistic ideas, right, to think of the probability of passing on the disease between nodes. So is that your idea? You'd make individuals nodes? Um, so the thing is, getting back to Doug's question, in the yes. same way that uh, if I give you the stochastic system and I let the particle number of particles become mm -hmm. large, mm -hmm. then you get uh, what you're getting, which is related. You know, you're describing it as numbers earlier on, it's really proportions or, or fractions of people or something. Mm -hmm. um, you can do the same thing, except for the infectivity is described through a graphical relationships, mm -hmm. so by a graph, so that yes. you have distribution of, of, of the nature of neighbors or, or whatever, you know, across the, my, my, my infectivity depends on how many neighbors I have and how I am on the graph and so forth. Mm -hmm. 
in that too, you also can get a large number of particles yes. in it. The graph structure itself also appears in the limit as well as the. I mean, I think that mm -hmm. what you're doing, you're obviously making a lot of things much harder. Yes. But, but there, I know that there's already, and again, coming from the ecology literature, actually, originally, the two people like the direct, there's, there's a lot of work on that, which is yes. very popular in the last few years. Some of the models on the network side, they, they'll get an R0 and it'll involve the degree, uh, or the average degree of the nodes. Yes, that's right. Uh, for cholera, I think you have to go a little bit further because if the individuals, the humans, would be the, the vertices of the graph and the edges would be with a, or the, the direct transmission, but what about the, in, the, sorry, yeah, the direct transmission, but how would you put the indirect transmission uh, in? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we're thinking of doing that in a spontaneous way, so the individual could have spontaneous transmission. Yes, yeah, so we, we are thinking a little bit about that, but I, maybe I can talk to you well, no, afterwards. I think that's very interesting. And I, I think, um, Oliver, you've done a bit of work on that. I wanted to, you have a nice paper on some of that. Well, I think you start with a discrete model there, and then you look at the continuous analog as well. So what we tried to do was to incorporate uncertainty of time variation and transmission rates right. by approximately yes. differential diffusion or mm -hmm. differential collision. Yeah. So yeah it's sort of going nice. in a halfway house. You're not going fully across the graphical model, but mm -hmm. you're trying to actually model contact rates between individuals, which I think could be quite tricky. Yeah. Presumably, you have two different types of nodes, you know, three pathogens as well as I want you to do. You have nodes where the individual is not pathogen, so we still want it's like a lot. It's, a, it's a big question. I like should tell us in ten years' time what works. But the, the, the thing is, there is in the same way that you can uh, take a chemical master equation when you assume everything is balanced. Turns out, if you're careful about it, you can do similar things. But like the graph structure enters into it in a more complex way than just the mean connectivity of nodes. You know, because yeah. So you're thinking about on a random graph or on a, a lattice? different ensembles that you could imagine for creating a random graph, not just out of the mm -hmm. around, but also parallel random graphs or whatever you want, you know, because again, yeah. as you say, the physical, the, you know, whatever you work in should be, uh, and somehow reflect the real biology in your case mm -hmm. in the situation. I can see you have contiguous regions, maybe that's, mm -hmm. maybe it's such a small graph that you don't have to fret about it, um, but most of those things, it's the graph itself is actually getting very large, it's a sequence of graphs. And so the thing is, if you have models like that, you're going to need a huge amount of data, because the, say the... Uh, so no, because again, yeah. you're, you're taking the limit as the system becomes very large, so, so everything gets summarized into a small number of variables. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we should talk about this later, because this sounds very interesting. I'm not aware of any specific models for color like that, but I might, could be wrong. But. Uh, that's a good point. So in other words, when you have, say, the different groups and different departments, you should have different numbers in each. Yes, but I think it, it varies a lot in Haiti. Yes, I don't exactly, I, I'm not aware how they put that in, but certainly you could definitely put that in different numbers in each. Yes, it would be important to put in. I think they, one of the regions in the Port-au-Prince, the, the capital is much more highly populated, yes. It's a good question. Yes. Um, so you have different outbreaks that seem to be spontaneous. Do you have any uh, to as far as I can, as far as I've heard, you know, the, the origin of the strange color that's in Haiti comes from somewhere in the Bay of Bengal. Mm, yeah. Some group of UN. That's right, that's what I was are saying. These separate strains from different places, or are these spontaneous transmission? Okay, so one of the. Is part of the evidence for saying that it was this UN group who what the yes. disease was, was uh, through the DNA of the, of the disease, yes. 
but um, it's not clear that that's totally that it, it can change quickly and so they weren't okay. sure but that's a good good point yeah so that's how they this group found that they thought think this is the most reasonable explanation of how it got there to start with because this apparently the strain was not in Haiti before scary, isn't it? Yeah. And I know some of the uh, UN groups thought that they, for logistical reasons mainly, that they would live on boats and outside Haiti, and so this seems to be much more <laughs> a sensible way to do it, rather than to go in with, with the disease. Yeah. Okay, well, there's nothing further. Let's thank Paul again.